Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. It was just like a big bad dream, I tell you. There was blood on the door frame. There was blood on the door. There was a blood spot on the bottom of the stairs. And the blood didn't drip. The blood poured out like Niagara Falls, like two gallons of blood across the living room floor. I mean, how do you explain that? It's the end of a hot Monday afternoon in Chilliwack, British Columbia, when Ed and Gladys Sherby realize they've gone all weekend without speaking to their 38-year-old son, Corey. After trying to reach him on the phone, they decide to stop by his house. There's no answer at the door, so Gladys lets herself in with a key she keeps for emergencies. Ed waits outside in their truck, and within minutes, he hears a piercing, blood-curdling scream as his wife makes a terrifying discovery. Steve French, and this is Unsolved Mysteries, Body of Evidence. August 22nd, 2011, is a date seared into Ed Sherby's memory. It starts with the realization that he and his wife, Gladys, haven't heard from their son, Corey, for three days. She called him, uh, and there's no answer. She says, well, let's go and check it out, see what's doing, uh, what's happening there. We got there, the truck was parked, and so Gladys went into the house just to check out and he was okay, you know, sort of thing. And then the woman started screaming. So I ran into the house, and we got up to the top of the stairs, and she was standing in front of him, screaming. And holy smokes. Corey is kneeling on the floor, face down in the couch, his head wedged between the seat cushions, his body lifeless. She could just see the top of his head. And then she gently went behind him, put her arms underneath his armpits and pulled him back and laid him on the floor. Valerie Story is Corey's aunt and godmother. The details of what she saw was not very pleasant. She didn't recognize who it was as she laid this body down. And she just could see all this pool of blood, you know, all over on the couch. Gladys ended up collapsing and the ambulance was called and they had to take her to the hospital because it was just so horrific what she had experienced. Gladys Sherby later describes what she saw to journalist and editor Paul Henderson, who covered the case for the local newspaper, The Chilliwack Progress. She said his eyelids were white, his face was white, his nose was blue, and there was no hair on the top of his head. And she said his ears actually even seemed to be missing. 
there was a, a horrific scene that two years after it happened, Gladys recounted it to me in tears. And every year since then, when we've talked, she, she talks about it as if it was yesterday. So it was a pretty gruesome scene. Corey, at the time of his death, was 38 years old. He was a logger, which is a really tough job if you're up and down the mountain constantly. And one slip of a tiny error and it can kill yourself or other uh, workers. So it's a, a huge responsibility and a tough job. He was physically fit and he was a very good looking man. He was about five foot nine or 10, about 180 pounds with solid muscle. He always had this infectious smile and he was always upbeat. He loved life. He was always cheery. I never saw Corey ever in a bad mood, ever. He was that kind of person. He was very positive. After receiving a frantic 911 call, police arrive at Corey's home to find his body on the floor where Gladys left him. The RCMP, or Royal Canadian Mounted Police, is the agency charged with the investigation. The initial investigating officer found no signs of trauma to the body, no sign of a struggle, no signs that he was stabbed or shot, and no signs of forced entry. A half glass of beer on a table and some evidence of possible drug use in the home lead investigators to a rapid conclusion. There was the needles in the garbage can just sitting right on top. And then they supposedly the police had found a black baggie in the toilet with tinfoil that they said is definitely things that drug users use. Corey's death is chalked up to a drug and alcohol overdose, something all too familiar in this growing Canadian town. The city of Chilliwack is about 100 kilometers to the east of Vancouver, which is obviously the main city in British Columbia. It's considered a rural community. It's an agricultural community. But the population is growing. It's uh, the fastest growing city in BC. There's about 100,000 people here. The drug situation in Chilliwack is like a lot of other communities. We're in the middle of an opioid crisis for sure, the way that all of Canada and probably most of the world is. There is a lot of cocaine. Some of the main gangs here are involved in the, the cocaine trade in the Fraser Valley, centered in Chilliwack. Corey's autopsy appears to confirm the overdose theory that a combination of cocaine and alcohol intoxication caused his death. The medical examiner labels it an accident, and police close the case. But Corey's parents, Ed and Gladys, are convinced there's been a rush to judgment. We walk into the police station, and they said, the file's closed, and they more or less showed us the door. What kind of police force is that? No time of that, no explanation, and all they do is talk about drugs, 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 drugs. Their conclusion that this is the only thing that could have happened to him, how much is that really facts because of the condition of the decomposition of the body? What was missed? What couldn't they see? The police had gone from initially putting police tape around the place, treating it as a suspicious death, and then by a couple of days afterwards, cleared everything out and were telling the family absolutely nothing. And they were very concerned about that. Jeremy Maddock is a legal consultant hired by Ed and Gladys to investigate Corey's death. I was working for a lawyer retained by the Sherby family. 
they were in uh, obviously grief stricken. It was shortly after their son had died and they felt that they were not getting adequate attention or information from the police. After reviewing the police report, Maddock discovers several items that seem to contradict the official findings. There was no sign that he had been drinking excessively in the time leading up to his death. As for drug paraphernalia, there was a bag, a Ziploc bag, that the police speculated may have contained drugs, but it was never tested or looked at for what it might have contained. And that was found in another portion of the floor. It was not in the vicinity of the body. I, I believe it was in the bathroom. There were also two used needles found in a garbage can, empty used needles. And it's significant in the autopsy report, there was no needle marks found on the body. So whoever used those needles, it wasn't Corey Sherby. Based on their assumption that Corey's death was just a tragic accident, the RCMP decided not to test the needles for DNA and never determine the substance that was in them. But that wasn't the only evidence that was ignored. Authorities failed to consider the strange position of Corey's body when he was found by his mother. Gladys found the body initially. It was not a natural resting position by any stretch of the imagination. He was bent sharply at the waist, face down in the leather couch. His face pushed far down between two couch cushions to the point where only the very back of his head was visible. He was kneeling at the end of his sofa, face down with arms on either side of his body. It was almost like it was staged or positioned. It wasn't a natural way of collapsing or falling from people or experts we talked about when somebody gets ill and they fall. This was not a common way for somebody to fall after something traumatic happened. And then there was the puzzling blood evidence that was found around Corey's body. With the blood and everything that drained from there, that went right through the couch, underneath the couch, on his shag carpet by his couch. It was with about, you know, with it swirling in and out, about seven feet wide by 17 feet long. There was a large pool of blood. In fact, it was said by the authorities, probably most of Corey Sherby's blood had left his body and was on the floor, along with decomposition fluid and a mix of blood and decomposition fluid. One review of the case that was done concluded that it was, in quotes here, not an unusual amount of bodily fluids in relation to a body well into the process of decomposing. The blood didn't drip. The blood poured out like Niagara Falls, like two gallons of blood across the living room floor. You know, and there's blood splatter above the ceiling where Corey's rocking chair is. I mean, how do you explain that? Decomposition could not explain traces of blood that Ed and Gladys noticed throughout the home. There was some reddish residue in the bathroom, in the bathtub, which appeared that it could be blood-related. The police said it looked more like soap scum to them, and again, they didn't test it or, or look at it or determine for certain what it was. There were smudges of blood on some of the door frames, in particular the door frame to the stairs, the stairs down to the, uh, the front entrance of the house. 
as if somebody had blood on their hand and, and was leaning up against the doorframe. But that wasn't really tested or followed up on. There is evidence in the photographs of some blood on the air conditioner next to the couch. But it's, again, very difficult to know how these substances got there when they were never really analyzed. The police said the blood splatter was from the decomposition of his body. And the uh, flies were landing on the fluid or the blood and then would fly it around and they would land in other areas. One would think that if there was blood splattered on the ceiling or on the air conditioner, that there would have been more of an investigation into that. There wasn't. And again, this is what bothers the Sherbys and this is what makes it confusing. And again, it raises this somewhat suspicion that makes the Sherbys very upset and just begs the question, where was the blood found exactly and how much was there and how did it get there? The most disturbing blood evidence that Ed and Gladys found were footprints that led from Corey's body to various rooms in the house. It would have taken a couple of days for all the blood and fluids to accumulate on the floor around the body, and by the time Corey was found, that blood should have dried. Could someone have been in the house after Corey was dead? You just stand in the hallway, there's three sets of footprints down the hallway, down the stairs, and there's footprints going to the patio door. I mean, how do you explain that? It wasn't just one set of footprints. There was a second one. One was about a size seven, we figured by measurements. And the other one was about an eight and a half, nine. But they were heading to the bathroom from the hallway, from the uh, dining room and living room, dining room, heading down to the hallway to the bedrooms. And then all of a sudden they were taking a right turn to the master bedroom. And all of a sudden they disappeared. There was also some footprints in blood around other parts of the house. For example, going towards the kitchen, which is where the needles were found in the garbage can, and going towards the bathroom, which was across on the other end of the house. The footprints appeared to be multiple sizes and multiple types of footwear. The police suggested that the bloody bare footprints could have been made by Gladys when she entered the house, but she never removed her shoes and was only in the room where Corey's body was found. Because the RCMP didn't suspect foul play, they never analyzed the footprints. But the most curious piece of evidence that was not collected by investigators is also the most compelling proof that someone else was likely involved in Corey's death. There was a piece of clothing, a denim jacket over his face and soaked in blood and bodily fluids. There was another white jacket on the floor, which also had evidence of blood and fluids splattered on it. And the family recognized neither of these pieces of clothing. Neither of them appeared to be Corey's clothing. And in fact, they appeared to be women's jackets. Something was going on. I mean, uh, jackets left behind. Did these people leave in a hurry? Like all the other evidence at the house, investigators don't request that the jackets be tested for DNA. The case is closed, the crime scene tape is removed, and Ed and Gladys are left to clean up. It's a grisly task, and what they find is beyond disturbing. Regarding the, the crime scene after the investigation was taken care of, it was really a mess. It was disgusting. What is also extra unusual, and uh, to be generous, 
that were at best unfortunate. Part of his scalp was left behind. The scalp was still on the floor. Gladys found it when they went back to the house again. Showed me a photograph of it, which was not nice to see. No one knows how Corey's scalp was left behind when the coroner removed his body. But there is a possible explanation for how it got separated from Corey's head. Skin comes off after a certain level of decomposition. Um, you can see in some of the, the crime scene photos, you can see the skin on his back is sliding off almost. The skin just starts to, to do that at a certain point of decomposition. And given all the other questions in this case, it didn't help damping down any suspicions that the Sherbys had that something bad happened because it just looked like such a horrific mess after the fact. Corey's autopsy does not provide an exact time of death. His body was discovered on Monday afternoon, August 22nd. Based on the advanced decomposition and the last time someone saw Corey alive, police believe he died between late Friday night, August 19th, and Saturday, August 20th. Ed last visited his son on that Friday evening, and that's when he saw a strange woman in Corey's house. I rang the doorbell, and the door was open, and I said, Hey, Corey, I hope you made supper for you. I got you a couple of hamburgers, and up the stairwell I go up, and on the top of the stairs, and there's a strange girl stays there. Here I am. I says, Oh, Corey, I'm sorry you... <laughs> you had company and he didn't say anything he was kind of blushing and he put the hamburgers on the bottom of the stairs I says well keep the door locked yeah 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 same old thing you know and that was Friday night and I told Gladys I says there's a strange girl there I says she looks a little bit kind of spooky maybe we should go go and find out who she is ah she says it's quarter to ten and why bother him you know that woman has never been identified. But Corey was dating a different woman at the time who claimed she did not see him that August weekend. He had a girlfriend for about 10 years. She was very likable, very pretty. She was very possessive, very controlling when it came to Corey. But he loved her, and that was obvious. He could not let go of her, even at the rocky times of their arguing, and that he said, I love her. And she said she loved him. Friday evening when Corey was still alive, she had talked to him and they were to have lunch on Saturday. In the past, if they had a luncheon date and he didn't show up, all heck broke loose. And it was when we got the records and I, of the cell phone and I'm looking, she had not tried reaching out. Where are you? I thought we were having a lunch date, nothing. And then all of a sudden, the record shows she phoned around 8 o'clock that Monday night. And I knew that was terribly out of character from their relationship. Because if he didn't show up, she tried to phone him or she would go over and try and figure out what, why. And of course, at that time, we started wondering, well, did she go over? Did she see something? I, it just We're just baffled by it. She came up with a comment that Corey and her had this arrangement. They'd make plans, they'd go for lunch or this and that, but if one didn't show up, it didn't matter. We just went on with our daily routines and made other plans elsewhere. That was never the case in, like I say, 10 years or more in their relationship, never. At his funeral, his girlfriend was just hysterically crying and shaking and trembling and 
that was the first I saw of her since Corey's death. I just found that really unusual. I've been to many funerals and saw people grieve, but I never saw anybody that was acting like his girlfriend was. It was almost like she was shaking so hard, like out of being scared or fear. His girlfriend did tell the police that he had been beaten up in the past by people who might have had some bad connections. She didn't know who they were. She speculated that they might have been in a gang, but she didn't seem to have very much information about that. The Sherbys, with their private investigator, dug up some evidence that Corey had been investing in a real estate project and had lent out a substantial amount of money. And the day of his death on the Friday, earlier in the day, Edward had spoken to Corey and Corey had said that he was having some kind of disagreement about a real estate deal, but didn't really give him any details. Corey's girlfriend at the time did give statements to the police. She said at the time, shortly after his death, that she was shocked by his death. She clearly seemed to believe that it was something more than just an accident. She didn't know him to be using drugs in the days leading up to his death. She did say that she spoke to him on the phone every day, and she never noticed him being intoxicated or going down a, a road of extreme drug abuse. Corey's girlfriend is unable to shed any light on Corey's financial dealings or any gang contacts he may have had. But a woman named Tammy insists the girlfriend is the key to the case. Tammy was a girl that Corey knew right from elementary school. He'd known her all her life. And she lived not far from Ed and Gladys. And when Corey died, she came a few times, late hours. I guess she was upset and she was telling them that somebody murdered Corey. She says, and his girlfriend knows about it. She knows about it or she's responsible. And I said, well, what are you talking about? And she says, I know. She says, I'm so mad at her and I'm so angry. And she started shaming her. She says, if I had a pitchfork, I would stab her. And I said, well, Tammy, that's been pretty dramatic. She says, no, she knows or she's responsible. And I says, I don't know what to say about this. And she says, another thing I'm telling you, if they knew I was talking to you, I'd be next. This was in September when she told me this. And a few months later, February, she was dead. Found dead on her floor. And I says, uh, well, how did she die from her? How did she die? She said she was uh, cut her finger and she got blood poisoning. I says, what? And that's what that was left at, that she died from blood poisoning or something. It was kind of hard to believe. One of the most revealing eyewitness accounts in the case comes from the last person who claims he saw Corey the night that he died, and he could have been the last person to see Corey alive. It's a taxi driver who picked up a fare at Corey's home that Friday night after Ed had stopped by with hamburgers. The taxi driver received a call from Corey Sherby's residence to pick up a passenger around uh, shortly before 10 o'clock on the Friday night. So this would have been probably just a few minutes after Edward was there. The taxi driver observed a male and a female coming out of the residence. He didn't know either of them. He was unable to identify either of them. He drove them to downtown Chilliwack, what I believe was described as not the best neighborhood, where the male asked him to stop but stay on call as he, was, he would need a ride back. 
got out of the vehicle, the female departed, and then the male got back into the taxi with a second female, who, again, the taxi driver did not know or recognize. And uh, the two of them asked for a ride back to Corey Sherby's residence, where he let them off. This whole encounter took a few minutes, is my understanding. And again, it's really not clear whether the male was Corey Sherby. Although the, uh, the taxi driver did say that he may have had something different about his voice. He said the voice was unusual, perhaps a speech impediment, and Corey Sherby did not have a speech impediment. The taxi driver also said that this male did not appear to be intoxicated. He said it was something different from intoxication. The taxi driver simply didn't know if it was Corey Sherby or not. I'm not sure if he was shown a photograph of Corey by the police. I do know he was shown photographs of several known prostitutes in the Chilliwack area to see if those were the women involved, and he could not positively identify them as any of the street workers that he was familiar with. And as a taxi driver who regularly took fares in downtown Chilliwack, he would have been familiar with the street workers in that neighborhood. The fact that the taxi driver remembers this shows us with certainty that there were other people present on the night that Corey is believed to have died. It suggests that there was comings and goings. There was a woman who left and another woman who arrived. We don't know who these people are. So it just supports the fact that this, there's something more to this than just a guy dying alone at home of a drug overdose. There was interaction going on throughout the evening. Somebody was there when he died. And somebody also was there after. Because the bloody footprints were from after the decomposition. Somebody had been through that house. And the police had used the excuse that the house was locked. But they don't realize that Corey had remote control garage doors. You can walk out to your landing garage door, press the garage door open, the door opens. And then as you're going to head out, just push the button and you're running, you're out, you're out and the house is locked. So there was different ways of getting in and out. The police kept on saying there wasn't, but there was. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? 
Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. None of the witness testimony or evidence from the scene is enough to convince police to reopen their investigation. The final report states, We have no reason to believe that any other person is responsible for Corey's death. There is nothing at the scene that would suggest otherwise. There were no signs of struggle, no bloodletting, and no trauma or injury to Corey's body. Then, three years after Corey's death, the Sherbys receive an anonymous letter. The letter, when they open up, this is what it said. It said, Dear Mr. Mrs. Sherby, Shakespeare said, Hell hath no fury than a woman scorned. That's the kind of homicide it was, a scorned woman. Those who know, and it's all capitalized, know it was, belong to too tight a group to say a word. I think your son Corey decided too late to back off and it jeopardized his well-being, his life. Sincerely, a reader of the Chowak Times. The Chilliwack Times is a local newspaper here. And that was such a shock to us. So I, I, you know, like, what? The anonymous letter, it was typewritten and photocopied, I believe. I don't know what it means, but it sure sounds like somebody is telling the Sherbys that this was a murder. It's mysterious and it's a little, a little bit cryptic, but I mean, it's basically saying that he was messing with somebody's girlfriend and he got killed over it. I don't know if that's true, and that's certainly a theory, and it's certainly a plausible theory in the world we live in. So, yeah, seeing that letter really reopened the case as a journalist, let's put it that way, that I had closed. <laughs> I think the letter is credible, and if it's not credible, it is so despicable of a practical joke that it's, it's hard to fathom, and I, and I don't understand why anybody would do that to Ed and Gladys. So it's either irresponsible or despicable or it's true. My thoughts on this letter is somebody definitely knew something to type up this letter and mail it to Ed and Gladys. But unfortunately, when we, they took it to the police, the police didn't take much credence to this letter. But in my opinion, there was somebody that knew something here and wanted to tell Ed and Gladys that they weren't off track when in their thoughts that there was foul plays. Their son was murdered. With so many clues pointing to foul play, the Sherbys hire an independent expert to review the autopsy results. Dr. Christopher Green is a medical doctor and a fellow at the American Academy of Forensic Sciences. His area of expertise contains a very unique mix of both medical expertise and also criminology expertise. So he's been contractor for uh, various branches of the American government including the CIA. Unlike the original coroner, Dr. Green is informed about all the circumstances surrounding the incident, including evidence found at the scene. Dr. Green was troubled by the explanation as to the cause of death that the coroner had reported and that the forensic pathologist had reported. He felt that some of the suspicious circumstances were not taken into account, particularly the state of decomposition of the body appeared to be inconsistent with the time of death. There was a metabolite in Corey's liver 
that suggested that sometime prior to his death, he had metabolized some cocaine. There was also alcohol in his system. However, the toxicology report pointed out that there's often alcohol in a decomposed body because the body, as it naturally breaks down, some alcohol is uh, is produced. So there was some alcohol, not independently enough to cause death. There was some metabolite of cocaine possibly being consumed before death. But significantly, there was no actual cocaine in the liver tissue. There was a test of zero for cocaine, suggesting that whatever cocaine he had had already been metabolized. Dr. Green did not feel that the levels of alcohol and cocaine metabolite present in Corey Sherby's system were sufficient to cause death. One possibility that he could not exclude and that he concluded was the most likely cause of death was some form of suffocation or strangulation. And he based that on a review of several academic articles where bodies were found in unusually advanced states of decomposition and there was evidence of suffocation or starvation of oxygen as a causing or contributing factor to the death. So based on that and based on what Dr. Green referred to as an unnatural position in which the body was found, he was of the view that the most likely cause of death was suffocation. I cannot believe the police didn't follow through and tested and investigated thoroughly that they came to that quick conclusion and stayed to that. That's the baffling thing because there's so many other scenarios out there that just doesn't make sense. Did his real estate investments leave him in a financial bind? Did something happen there that we didn't know about? And with this letter that was sent to Ed and Gladys, who says those things? That's what's baffling me and is all this stuff keeps unsurfacing. Even two years ago, somebody at the courthouse came up to Ed and said that Corey was murdered and gave a name of a person. Over the years, Ed and Gladys continue to pressure authorities to reopen the case. Finally, in 2018, their efforts are rewarded. After many, many years of waiting, the police complaint commissioner for the RCMP came out with a report determining that the Royal Canadian Mounted Police had conducted an inadequate investigation. It was not a reasonably thorough investigation into this death and ordered the Chilliwack RCMP to apologize to the Sherby family. An official inquest is convened in November of 2020 and a jury hears evidence and testimony in the case with one key exception. The real problem with the inquest is Nine years after the fact, by the time it occurred, this was already well into the category of a cold case. The human witnesses who testified had very limited recollection of what had happened nine years previous. Most of the physical evidence had been destroyed. So it was really just a very limited process of re-interviewing the witnesses in front of the jury and looking at the photographs. Significantly, And very disappointingly to the Sherby family, the coroner made a decision that Dr. Green was not qualified to testify because he's not a forensic pathologist. He's a medical doctor and a criminologist, but he doesn't examine dead bodies for a living. And the coroner found that the only experts who should be allowed to testify are people who examine dead bodies for a living. 
Without Dr. Green's expert testimony, and since most of the pertinent evidence in the case was never preserved or properly analyzed, the inquest jury has no choice but to fall back on the original conclusion of investigators. It's unfortunate that it took nine years to get to the point where they would even have a fact-finding process. And the sad irony is that when that happened, the facts were largely no longer there to be found. In the end, their verdict was that this was an accidental death caused by cocaine and alcohol intoxication. And the only recommendation they made is that in future cases, the police should collect available evidence at the scene of a death. With no change in the cause of death, the investigation remains closed. Really, the only hope of any breakthrough would be if some human source who knew something were to come forward and say something. Ed and Gladys absolutely believed that somebody murdered their son. And I believe it was totally foul play. And somebody was there. And something went wrong. Somebody did do something to Corey that night. The RCMP did not do a thorough investigation. If they did, we would have had more answers and maybe not be sitting where we are today. It's tragic for the Sherby family because without knowing what happened to Corey, it's been difficult for them to move on with their lives. This is a couple who've lived in the Chilliwack community for many years, hardworking family who deserve to enjoy their retirement. But as a result of what happened to Corey, they can't. To get something like this off one's mind is virtually impossible, even for an hour, let alone for a day or a week. As you go to bed feeling the same way and you get up in the morning thinking the same thing over and over, just like the first day it happened. There's something got to be going on. Somebody knows something. You know, it's just something missing there. It would feel better if they catch somebody. Maybe things will change. If you have any information about the death of Corey Sherby in Chilliwack, British Columbia, Canada, submit a tip at unsolved.com. Next on Unsolved Mysteries. The first thought in my head was that it just wasn't real. It wasn't true. That nobody could be that mean. Nobody could have done that to her. She didn't deserve it. I was never going to see her again. Unsolved Mysteries is a production of Cosgrove Muir Productions and Cadence 13. It is executive produced by Terry Dunmuir and Chris Corcoran. Produced by Lloyd Lockridge, Christine Lenick, Courtney Ennis, Paige Heimson, and Paul Yates. The story producer for this episode was Cynthia Bowles, and it was edited by Paul Yates. From Cadence 13, editing, mixing, and mastering by Chris Basil, Andy Jaskowitz, and Bill Schultz. Production support by Sean Cherry and Ian Mont. Artwork and design is by Kirk Courtney. Publicity by Josephina Francis and Hilary Schuff. The original theme music was composed by Gary Malkin and Michael Boyd. Thanks for listening to episode 33 of Unsolved Mysteries.